Well, I'm glad you made it out tonight, and um, I pray that you will be encouraged. I want to spend just a few minutes uh, this evening reflecting a little more from this morning's message, and then uh, we'll close out by singing. That's the handout. We'll close out by singing uh, Psalm 1. Well, this morning we looked at, uh, well, we began looking at, looking, uh, considering the Psalms as being Christian scripture, uh, looking at it as the songbook for the saints, uh, the songbook for the church, and then we spent some time considering the Davidic shape of the book of Psalms and looked at um, the covenant God made with David in, first, in 2 Samuel 7, and that God made a covenant that from David there would be a particular descendant who would be a king who would rule on the throne forever and ever. But tonight I want to look at another aspect of why we would particularly call the Psalms Davidic. And that is that they're songs, and that this represents something of significance in the life of the people of Israel. So as we read through the scriptures, we look at um, the life of Moses, uh, the life of the people of Israel, and the giving of the law. Um, We don't see particular instructions for music as connected to the the living out of the law given to Moses. Now we see um, a song of Moses in Exodus 15, if you want to turn there for a moment. We have a record of Moses writing a song, uh, Exodus 15. Um, so Moses functioning as a prophet of God, a prophet leading the people of Israel, he writes a song and he leads the people to sing this song, um, Exodus 15 verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song, To the Lord, they have been delivered. They have crossed through the Red Sea. They've seen the Egyptian army destroyed by the power of God. It's an incredible miracle. And what kind of response should there be? A a response of song, a response of worship. And so Moses writes this song and he leads the people in worship. Towards the end of um, Exodus 15, we also see that Miriam, uh, a prophetess, also leads the ladies in particular ways. So um, Exodus 15, verse 20, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the Lord and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. So we see Moses leading the people in worship, and then we see Miriam and some of the other ladies with tambourines and dance leading the people in worship. But there's no specific instructions given through Moses um, to, um, in, in particular ways that, that music or song should be part of um, the, the sacrificial system. But we see in King David... King David instituting particularly that there should be song and music as the structured part of worship. So I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles 15, because I want you to see where this happens. Uh, 1 Chronicles 15. 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. Here, the book of Chronicles is, is recording... Uh, these things that King David did, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant was not in Jerusalem. And so King David 
uh, makes plan to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem and establish it in Jerusalem, which is significant for a number of reasons. Um, God was going to build a temple in Jerusalem, but before the instruction to build the temple in Jerusalem, David brings the Ark up. David recognizes that he, as the king, is in a unique place to lead the people of, of Israel, but he also recognizes the importance of worship and the Ark. So he brings the Ark up to Jerusalem as well. And so we see the coming together of, of kingship and of temple worship, um, where the temple will be built. So that's something that David initiates. And we see then in First Chronicles 15 um, that David is uh, giving instructions of what's going to happen for this procession of bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. So in verse 16 of First Chronicles 15, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres in cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. And so then there's this listing of, of who the various uh, people would be, verse 17. So the Levites appointed uh, Heman, the son of Joel, and his brothers Asaph, the sons of Barakiah, and the sons of Moriah, their brothers. Ethan, the sons of Krishiah, and with them their brothers, the second order, Zechariah, and they list the number ones down into verse 19. The singers, uh, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound bronze cymbals. And there's more instructions that follow on there. So um, as we look, as we read in, this, uh, in the book of Psalms, uh, some of these names are going to come up. The, the sons of Asaph are some of the writers of the Psalms. Down in verse, uh, let's see, 24, um, at the end of verse 24, and the priest, that the priest should blow the trumpets before the ark of God, um, and then, um, and so there's this procession being led by these trumpets. I want to jump down then to First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles 16, verse 1. And so they brought in the ark of God, and having this procession being um, leading the ark up to Jerusalem, they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and, and a cake of raisins. Before I read on, just I want to pause and note something here. Um, so David, we, we, we reflected this morning that David is referenced as a prophet. Um, and here he has priestly overtones in how he's functioning before the people of Israel. And that also is an anticipation that the one who would come from him, the king who would come from him, would indeed act as a priest and... Um, David prophesies this um, as we read in Psalm 110, that uh, from him would be the one established, um, and from him this one would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we even see what we see functioning in Psalm 110 anticipated here in the life of David. Okay, reading on, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 4. 
Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him was Zechariah, Jael, uh, Shemaramoth, uh, Jehiel, Matanahiah, sorry, Matatiah, Eliab, Benaniah, Obed, Edom, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And Benaiah and Zahaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So we see here this significant place that King David has in the development of musical worship for the people of Israel as connected to the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai and to the the priestly work and to the sacrificial process. So we think of the Psalms, the Davidic Psalms. I think we should think of that first and foremost because of the Davidic covenant that gives shape to the book of Psalms. But it's also fitting that we refer to them as the Davidic Psalms because David is the one who here initiates the, 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 the role and the place of song and of music in the worship of the people of Israel. And as I was, um, I was reflecting on this, um, I, was, I was thinking about Christ. And I don't really think about Jesus as musical. Um, There's not much really said um, in uh, the Gospels, unless someone can think of a particular place, um, except for uh, in the the upper room where they sang a hymn. So there's some reflection of singing. But I I, I was reflecting um, on the, the, the nature of God and of his son, um, Jesus the Christ. And I'm thinking about how David is a type of Christ. And that we, we learn something of the nature of Christ through David, um, of, of who the Christ would be. But also we think of something of the spirit of Christ who inspired David. And that... Um, <coughs> In God's good purposes, um, we serve and love Christ as our Redeemer, but we serve and love him also as our High Priest. And we also serve and love him as um, one who I think we can confidently say um, is musical, and I'm interested to see what this is going to look like in eternity. Um, we think of singing songs to God, but I think we have here something of a, of a gesture towards the fact that songs have their ultimate origination in the heart of God. And that it's right and fitting to worship God in song because of the nature of God, and he gives inspiration to song. So I don't know what you think about singing, um, whether you think about singing as kind of a really earthly thing that just mere humans do because God calls us to do this. But to think of song as something that comes from God for us, that's fitting for us as people made in God's image to sing, and it's fitting for the creator of all for us to sing back to him. 
and to worship him in song. So the Psalms of David, Davidic Psalms, because of the Davidic covenant, but also because of song, song given to us and song for us, and then the songs given, as it were, to be songs sung by Jesus in his earthly ministry. I want to then just jump now for a few minutes and look at Psalm 1. I want to add a Make a few more comments from this morning as we reflect on someone. So let me read someone again, and then I'll make some comments on that. And then we'll sing it. So, someone, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As I look at, I think, just looking, all of you have been in church for some years, so I'm sure all of you have heard at least one message uh, from Psalm 1. And you would have heard the, the, the point being made here in verse 1 that there's a progression um, from a walking to standing in the way and then to sitting in the seat of the scoffers. So there's, a, there's a progression here that, that um, there's a, a going about life in light of the counsel or the advice of the wicked. Then there's a, a standing, a, a presence within the pattern of the sinners, and then there's a sitting down, a, a, we might say a, a, a resting in this a place of the scoffers. And I think this progression is, is fair. There's a progression from, from listening to the counsel given to living in a way, um, practicing a life that's in line with the counsel given of the wicked. And then a resting in or a sitting in that perspective and out from that perspective, a judgment and a reflection on life from the perspective of the wicked. There's a progression that is, that is going there. Um, the, the more you um, give heed to the, the words or the counsel of the wicked, the more you will have a life shaped by that counsel. And you'll end up being in a place of, of scoffing at the righteous. Now, what the psalmist doesn't do is he doesn't replace this with a set of three parallels. He doesn't say, but blessed is the man who walks listening to the counsel of the Lord. Blessed is the man who stands in the way of the righteous. Blessed is the man who sits in the seat of righteous judgment. We don't see that progression. What we have in verse 2 is just this statement, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But what's said in verse 1 is suggestive of what might happen in this delighting in the law of the Lord. When you delight in the law of the Lord, you are listening. It's kind of like, but opposite to walking in the counsel of the wicked. You're, as it were, walking in the counsel of 
the Lord. You, you give your attention to the counsel of the Lord. And what happens as you give your attention, attention day by day to the teaching of the Lord? You begin to live a life shaped by the teaching of the Lord. And then you come to a place of righteous judgment, of righteous discernment of the world around you. I want to go back to Deuteronomy 17. And I want you to see how something is being played out here. In Deuteronomy 17, um, this is uh, the second part of Deuteronomy 17 is a set of instructions concerning a future king of Israel. How should the kings function when Israel gets kings? And here are the instructions. I want to particularly look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. Here's the instruction. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left hand, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children and Israel. So, so the king is to, is to in, he is to, by his hand, Make a copy that is faithful, and the Levites are going to check that, and he's going to make a faithful copy that it might be close by him, that he might daily and regularly take up the word of God and read it and meditate on it, so that the reading and meditating on the scriptures might lead to a life conformed to the scriptures, and so that he might faithfully, as a king, have a long rule. And implied in that is that he would rule in justice, in righteousness, that his rule might be influenced by and shaped by the meditating on the word of God that gives shape to his life and so leads to a faithfulness in living out a judgment, a discernment in his kingly rule. So firstly, I want you to see how Psalm 1 is reflecting these instructions given to the given for the king in Deuteronomy 17, as I referenced this morning, played out in God's instructions to Joshua and Joshua 1. And here, Psalm 1, a psalm that is given, that gives shape to the book of Psalms, that reflects these instructions to the king. Well, we also can receive these instructions. What's good for the king is good for the people, right? We're to follow the king. And um, we, we hear we, the, the king is to be exemplar of the righteous life. And so we follow the king. We follow Christ who so perfectly lived this out. That we would be a people who meditate on the law of the Lord. That those meditations might lead to a life lived in light of that truth. That we might live a life of discernment, of right judgment of uh, those around us. <clears throat> 
I mentioned this this morning. I wanted just to say a few more things about the second part of verse 2. On his law, he meditates day and night. Thinking of Deuteronomy 17, thinking of Joshua 1, and then as we read Psalm 1, I think this is more than just saying that we should meditate um, both when the sun is up and when the sun is down. Um, it, it's saying something about the pervasiveness of this meditation on all of life. Whether you're going about your nightly time duties and you're going down and lying in sleep, or whether you're waking and going into your day, may your meditation on the Word of God be fitting and be applied to all of life. I think of another passage um, in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That is the law that has been given. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the instruction of the law is to be pervasive through all of life. And you're to write them on your doorposts so that as you go into your or as you go out of your home in the morning, come back into your home, you're reminded that you're to live a life oriented around the word of the Lord. So there are some other passages of that that I have in, the, have in my mind as I read here in Psalm 1, this meditating on the law of the Lord, and this, this meditating throughout all of life, the, as it were, the remembering and the applying and the living out of God's law in all of life. Um, in verse 4, looking at the wicked, in contrast to the righteous who are like a flourishing tree, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives Away. I just want to think here for a moment of the nature of temptation. You know, when we're tempted to do things, we're tempted. What's, what's attracting to us? This is a really good thing to do. This will satisfy you. This will bring joy to you. Um, this will make things better. This will make things easier. Like all, all the things that make sin attractive to us. And, and there's a reminder here that one of the things that temptation promises is, is enduring satisfaction and joy and blessing. And, and the end of the wicked is, is like this. It's just fluff. It's nothingness. And so, so we, we need to be daily reminded. Um, I need to be daily reminded. Because in order for us to... One of the things that's necessary for us to effectively fight sin is for us to realize the vacuous promises of sin. It's as nothingness. It doesn't bring enduring joy. It doesn't bring lasting pleasure. It, it doesn't help things work out well in the long run. Though it might work out well in the short term, but in the long run, it just leads to a life that is like chaff that the wind drives away. As I said this morning, 
Nothingness is driven away into oblivion. That's kind of the picture here in verse 4. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There might be a sense here of a, of a temporary judgment. But as we read the Psalms, as we read it in light of Christ, we see here certainly something that is speaking of a judgment of eternal value or, or of eternal significance. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will not be upright. As it were, they will be overwhelmed in the judgment. They will be condemned. And... Um, nor will sinners stand, as it were, in the congregation of the righteous. They will be excluded away. They will be separated away from the righteous. And then verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Those who know the Lord are in the congregation of the righteous. Those who know the Lord stand before him. They are not condemned in judgment. The Lord knows them. This, is, this speaks of blessing. The Lord knows them. He, he knows them in relationship. And as we think about this in light of the New Testament, I think of beginning of John. All those who believe in Christ, he gave the right to become the children of God. The children of God. This is the place of being known by God, being in fellowship with God, being a part of God's family. As you look at Psalm 1, I just want to make some other broad, broad comments here. How might we pray Psalm 1? How might we pray Psalm 1 as Christians? Well, we pray it in light of the work of Christ, who has died for us, has risen again, and that we have a confidence that we will stand in the judgment, not based on our perfect righteousness, because we have no perfect righteousness, but we will stand in the judgment. We are known by God because of our union in Christ. As we think about what we learn in light of Christ's ministry and the giving of the Holy Spirit, we delight in the law of the Lord, because in the, Lord, in the law of the Lord we know him in the in the meditating upon scriptures, we fellowship with Christ through the Spirit. And so to, to think of the significance uh, of Psalm 1 for us as Christians, having the, the full revelation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the ministry that we receive in Christ by the Spirit, we read Psalm 1 with this, can we say, full Trinitarian perspective that we can take the richness of Psalm 1 in its depth, in its glory, in its goodness, because we see Christ as the Redeemer, the one in whom we have righteousness, and we see the spirit that he has given. So as you read Psalm 1, um, it's not like it's obvious that God is a triune God from Psalm 1. But knowing what we know in the revelation of Christ and his spirit, as we read Psalm 1, we can read Psalm 1 with this fuller understanding of God's Trinitarian nature. And so Psalm 1 does not become Trinitarian because of Christ. 
Someone has a Trinitarian character to it, but we see the Trinitarian richness in someone because we see Christ glorified in his death and resurrection and because the Spirit of God is living within us. I think that's an important distinction to make. We're not, we're not reading into someone something that's not there. It's there, and we see it now because of Christ and his glorification. Okay, with those thoughts, let me close. I'm going to pray, and then Andrew's going to come up and lead us as we will stand and sing the words of someone. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come before you in prayer with the confidence that you know us as your children because of Christ. You've adopted us as your sons because of your perfect son. And we have the confidence of an eternal inheritance because we are united to the one who you've given that inheritance to. Oh, Father, we... We call you our Father and we are confident of your blessing to us. Thank you for your love for us in Christ. Thank you for this blessing that we receive in Christ. A sureness that depends not ultimately on us, but upon the work of your Son, Jesus. Father, as we meditate on someone, we are confronted with our lack of faithfulness and consistency, our, I might even say, lackadaisical attitude that we have to your word. We do not delight in it as we should. We're so easily distracted by the allurements of this world, by the counsel of the wicked around us that is appealing to our fleshly, sinful instincts. Forgive us. And I ask that through today's meditation, through today's reflection on Psalm 1, that we would be a people who go into this week stirred and motivated and challenged to be a people who delight in your word. As we wake up, may our mind go to meditate on your truth. As we go through the day, May we see the applicability and appropriateness of your word and truth to our lives. May we be reminded of your promises, reminded of your challenges, reminded of your direction, your law. That we would, we would be reminded of the work of Christ in the ministry of your spirit. O oh Lord, I pray, stir in us. Open our eyes to see the beauty of your word and the beauty of Christ reveal in your word that we might delight and be satisfied in you through your word. We thank you, O Father, for the ministry of your spirit, that by your spirit you open our eyes more and more. By your spirit you give us understanding of your word that we might know you. By your spirit you have given us a guarantee uh, of our eternal inheritance. By your spirit, we are assured that we will escape the judgment of the wicked, that we might stand in the congregation of the righteous. And so, O oh Father, we pray that we might live not according to our flesh, 
but according to your spirit. That we might live out the truth and the reality of Psalm 1. Because by your spirit, we have been united to the one who perfectly lived out the reality of someone. And so, Father, may you satisfy us. May you bless us because of our union with Christ through the ministry of the Spirit of Christ. And together, God's people say, Amen.